Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Nick Rafferty, co-founder of SureCloud. Today, I'm joined by Matt Davis, Senior Director of Product Management, and Yang Zheng, Senior Director of Customer Success, both of whom have a rich history in implementing solutions in all sizes of organizations and all sectors. Today, we're going to be discussing tooling in GRC and IRM and how it can support your programs and how you can look to get the best out of it. Let's kick things off by discussing what are the first drivers for looking at tooling in the first place. One of the things that people often look at, like GRC or IRM tooling, is regulatory drivers. Uh, often it's where they get the most budget from. So there'll be something that changes, i.e. a new version of PCI. The current one is UK SOX, which, I mean, Yang <laughs> spoke at length about. There's a new version of ISO 27001 coming out. Any of these things often are why people are going, actually, I need a tool. The other one is that, and this, this is probably what we see a lot of, is people maybe don't have a well-defined process or it's quite fragmented. And then they go, actually, let's buy a tool because it'll fix it. Yang, have you got any thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah. So process is definitely one of the key ones apart from regulation. So what we often see is not only our process sometimes fragmented or or it's outdated, but also um, for many organizations, especially the ones that's been in the business for a while, their process might be defined at a different age when things were more manual. Yeah. So the things that you're kind of thinking for that is that they've ended up pulling from through mergers, acquisitions, they get like four or five different versions of the truth. They're bringing this data together using Power BI, Tableau, Click view, whatever it is, they're trying to bring it together. And the other thing is that there's a lot of duplication in these manual processes that often they're similar, but, but not quite the same. So people think, actually, let's get a tool and align these processes. And that comes into that combination of different tools. So a lot of the time, what people are doing is they're using something like, I don't know, they'll start with Excel because Excel, Excel is the easiest thing to build a risk assessment or compliance tool in. But that, that evolves over time and then they end up using other tools to support it, email, SharePoint to store it. And then it quickly becomes, I would say, difficult to manage. <laughs> so there's just a lot of manual effort to operate that process. And I think then it becomes more of a hindrance. So people say, actually, let, let's look at tooling to do this. Is it the yeah. speed of information delivery to the business as well? Sort of yeah, demands of the business. Yeah, definitely. That's yeah, that's a really good point, and that leads to one of the um, other common reasons why people are looking for a tool, and that's because these processes and activities are manual, and when they were designed, they were more designed for the operation of the business, but reporting has been omitted. So, a lot of business out there are looking for a tool to help them collect that information, hopefully in real time and help with reporting. Reporting is also taking a huge chunk of manual effort. Yeah, reporting ends up being an afterthought. And to your point, Nick, people yeah. doesn't want the process because they want a, a really complex process to get all of the operations done. But then they go, oh yeah, I forgot we have to get reports out of the back of it. <laughs> and at the end, they're like, yeah, we've built a really great process, but we get rubbish reporting. <laughs> yeah, it's Actually, I, I've seen a lot of that in the implementations where they'll forget the end goal as well and look at the process first and then come back to the reporting at the end and think, oh, Actually, we're not capturing a key piece of data that will then support that, that kind of report. So it's not just the jump to a tool. There's obviously things that you have to consider 
know, when you're actually implementing the tool. So what sort of questions would you recommend people are sort of asking when they're looking at considering the Moosa tool there and what they want out of it? I think the first one is what will it be doing? I mean, often, I know that sounds really, really, really basic. <laughs> it, depending on the size of your organization, you may just want a tool to bring data together, right? So you're just an aggregator. So there are businesses that are complex in their nature and they're just made up of lots of legal entities and they have a holding company. They're not really looking for a process tool. They're looking for bringing information together so I can aggregate it. Or is it more around, actually, we want to embed and Yang talks at length on this, risk and compliance in the business. Are we wanting this to be a first-line tool or is it a second-line tool? And I know that seems really back to basis, but the amount of time that people don't really know what they want from it at the beginning is, is really, really important for me. But what would make the, the sort of, what would be the answer to either of those then? So if they were considering, should this be for the first line or just the second line, what would be the, the sort of deciding factor in terms of where they would end up with that? So from a deciding factor perspective, I think we should just rewind a bit to the point that business sometimes overlook the question, right? And because they've overlooked it, what they look for out there as well as what they think are requirement may differ to what they actually need as an end game. So to achieve what they really need, I think the first question is, what is it they're trying to solve internally? Today, is it a problem because there's lack of oversight on what first line is doing or there's no way of capturing the activity of the first line? Or is that first line is operating fine, it's just it's impossible to aggregate that information to the second line and even further to manage forum, manager forums or leadership you know, meetings to actually make a business decision. And I think that's, the bo- that, that's kind of the bottom line that needs to be addressed before they go out and start looking for a product. The other bit on that is it lines the structure of the business. So again, there are businesses that in their nature buy and sell businesses. <laughs> They're probably looking for the latter, which is a central reporting tool because they don't want to embed the first-line practices in everything. But if you're a mature organization with standardized process, you probably want to embed the first line in it. You want to make them accountable for risk because you you see it as a long-term tool for them. I think it's a decision for, obviously, their risk compliance, CISO, whoever it is, to say, like, what is it really we want to do? Obviously, it's for me, it's always the latter as, as long as it aligns with your the nature of your business yeah okay yeah, look it's quite interesting for me in that sense because I, again i see quite a lot of um implementations out there that are driven by that core set in the second line the whole design is driven by that and then it does clearly there is a need to get the data from the first line but that almost seems like a bit of an afterthought during this sort of design phase yep. and then clearly one of the biggest challenges that, that we've recognized in in the grc industry as a whole is adoption longer term adoption the rollout and adopting the solution. It has to be simple. Sometimes it's not as simple as it perhaps could be from a first-line perspective and interaction. So is that something you've you've seen? And is that a result of not considering those sorts of higher-level options at the start and sort of drivers? Yeah. So I've definitely seen a lot of those in my previous um, design workshops to build a GRC solution for customers. So... I don't think it's a omission of the, you know considering those facts. It's more it's just it's being an afterthought or not taken as a priority in the design phase. So and that that can be very risky for the business because what ends up happening is you end up with a solution designed purely for reporting or managerial purposes, but it's very difficult or the features haven't been in, you know enabled for first line to do any activity quickly efficiently. 
and also, you know, you omit things like how do I look at performance on the first line because that hasn't been thought. So that's why it's very important that business think about who their end users are and what they need, right? So all the different stakeholders should be present or at least a representative of them should be present when you start designing a solution. Yeah, that makes sense. So what, sorry, Matt. No, one of the things I'm just going to add there that we see quite a lot in implementations is like, like to Yang's point is they think about reporting, but they're not thinking about the jump from their existing process to what they're doing now. So they'll say, okay, we what we're doing now is we ask them to do 10 things. <laughs> And then our new process is perfect world. We want them to do 25 things. And they probably don't think about training them, making sure that's in place. And then, then the business get to it. And like, this used to take me 10 minutes. Now it takes me an hour. Like, because you've doubled, tripled my workload. And I think it's, it's not, it's a journey of like actually getting the good stuff in, which is the minimum, and then evolving that over time rather than just going straight down that okay, let's let's build the perfect world because realistically, you're asking them to do a lot more work and it's kind of taking them along the journey and the value with you. I think, again, from my observation, that seems to be that if you've made the decision to jump into a tool, it seems to be, I guess, a, another sort of driver that actually this is a chance to then load everything into that tool and perhaps overcomplicate it. So you have a, a very, fairly simple, what would be a system, which is you know, capturing through you know, spreadsheets, distributing uh, information via email system. So that is your system. And then actually now I've got the opportunity to implement something much more sophisticated. And I think that's another issue that people face is overcomplicating the initial design and implementation rather than just keeping it simple. And I don't know whether that's a challenge with the fact that we're dealing with risk professionals and their job is about managing risk and compliance checks and all those sorts of things. It isn't designing systems in software. And sometimes I've got a software background. Sometimes I find it interesting trying to explain that what is possible in the world of spreadsheets, emails, and you know, reporting in, in Word or, or in Excel is not necessarily, well, first off, it might not be possible in a, in a system because there's a human interaction and decision-making that isn't necessarily following a structured logic but also it might not be sensible in a system. There might be better ways. And I guess that's why best practice built into software and tooling is, is a, an appealing thing, so long as you don't then stray away from it too, too far, I guess. Yeah, and, and that comes to the scope of the solution, doesn't it? Like, like Once you understand like what it should be doing, you should really define a clear scope and objectives. And it comes back to, oh, you want to embed it in the first line, <laughs> then we want to focus on simplicity. We want good reporting. We want to focus on the right things. And you think about like what the scope's going to be over time. And I think this is where a lot of people probably fall over. They go in and say, well, we've got a risk problem now. Let's just buy a risk solution. But probably don't think actually 12 months time, 18 months time, I have to do compliance, third-party risk. And, it, and it's not about like, I need to buy it all at once, but it's about what are the things that we may need to do that are critical and just having a think of that scope to make sure it's scalable. Because the amount of times we've gone into clients or work clients where they've got three or four tools or three or four built tools because they've gone, yeah, we started with risk and then that wasn't really fit for purpose for our compliance needs and we weren't really fit for our third-party risk team and they end up with like four tools and then some crazy Power BI thing on top of it trying to bring it all together. Yeah, kind of defeats the object, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So what, what, are the, um, what are the options then that are open to people for buying technology in this area? 
So I think there's a few. And I think the first one is, I mean, you can buy for the regulatory driver. So a lot of the time you go out and you say, Let, let's have a look at my immediate problem. And what is it the thing that I need to do? So let's take right now, UK socks for operational resilience, right? So you go and say, I just need that. <laughs> you can buy that. It answers your problem right now. But often, like the benefits this is, it's probably lower cost. It's very specific to what you need. You can probably get it up and running fairly quickly. The other problems, well, I guess the cons with this is that it ends up being only for that purpose. And I might be wrong, because obviously you may think about it and more scalable, but often you buy it, you get it running, and then someone else in the business goes, oh, we need to, we need a risk assessment tool, we need this, we need that. And then you take a step back and go, oh, it doesn't do that. And that ends up in that thing that I was saying before, where you just end up buying a few different things. So from a cost efficiency perspective, yes, a single driver, whether it's regulatory or to solve an immediate business problem is definitely um, more cost efficient. But like Matt said, there are always um, shortcomings with that approach. And scalability is one, but the other really worrying issue is a business still can't get the full picture of how they operate because the tool is built for a specific purpose. Now, that purpose may lead to one of the business objectives or one of the business, solving one of the business problem, but it doesn't underpin you know, whether issues that's flagged in one tool is, you know, can resonate or has a cascading effect across the rest of business because it's siloed verticals and there's no horizontal information uh, exchange. Another risk with using compliance as a driver is compliance look at outcome. So what you end up be doing is similar to the scope issue earlier is your whole scope is what is my end game? What is the output I want? But then you risk of having, you know, adoption problems because part of the scope should also be the process of getting to that outcome. And compliance or regulatory compliance don't really tell you about the process. They look at what you need to provide by the end of the day to be compliant. And that's something to think about as well when we go for a single, you know, purpose um, tool selection. Do you think that those silos exist only in large organizations or do you think they exist in smaller organizations as well? And second part of that question then is, if they exist in small organizations as well, is that because of budget constraints? So I personally think, based on my experience, silos exist the minute we start grouping resources into different buckets. And I'm not 100% sure if it's because of a resource constraint, but the reason why it start becoming silos is definitely for a clear way to allocate a budget and resource. So, yeah. Sorry, Matt. I think the other thing is it's, it, it's more obvious in big organizations because <laughs> there's very much, this is my data, this is your data, and you always find that. I think in smaller organizations, they kind of get by because they can still talk to one another quite easily and they can identify, yeah, this information's in a silo, but for example, Yang's in the other business area, I can just call him, I know who it is. And you take some of the big organizations that you work with, they, they probably don't know who their peers are in some of these teams and it, yeah. information just doesn't end up getting shared. Yeah, and that's <laughs> definitely true. Yeah, for larger organizations, it's you know, very common that you might have different functions or different teams that's actually looking at the same thing, but because it's tagged on the different umbrella or different responsibility, they're not aware they're doing duplicate work. Yeah, it's interesting. I was going to say, it's very probably a very, very difficult question to answer, so I'll just throw it out there and not expect any real response to it. But there must be, listening to that, there must be a certain level within an organization and certain size of organization where there is an optimal chance of getting that that sort of cross-functional working 
I guess that's um, that's the challenge that organizations face. Yeah. So that goes back to the tool selection, right? If it's solving that bigger problem of how do we break data silos, how do we understand how our business operate as a whole, then probably a single purpose tool for risk compliance area isn't sufficient. What the business should focus on is then looking at something like an integrated risk management solution or GRC solution, their synonyms, to see how they can onboard different categories and different pillars of risks and different compliance or regulatory requirements into a single system so that they can achieve a top-down risk management approach as well as a bottom-up risk management approach to sync it up to their you know, mission statement, business objectives, you know, top 10 business issues that try to resolve in the next you know, X, Y, Z period. That is, the in an ideal world, the optimum way of tool selection or, or using a tool to break these silo of information and, and respond to problems more effectively. However, there's a big prerequisite to going for you know, a big bang approach of a wider integrated risk management solution. And the first obvious one is cost. If we're uncertain of how big a change we're taking, how can we secure enough cost to make sure that after a much longer time scale of implementing and you know, adopting a new way of working, we actually achieve the end game we initially set up? But it's funny, though, because it's almost as if the problem has become that big in the larger size organizations. And that's the only time at point at which they can justify the investment when it's almost perhaps too late, you could argue, to then try and implement a behemoth IRM solution across the whole organization. And that's what I was trying to kind of getting at is what, what's the sort of trigger point where an organization really should be moving away from point solutions and silo in terms of size into something where they are thinking integrated risk or GRC across the organization. And again, it's probably very difficult to answer because it's different for all organizations, I'm assuming. But is, is there anything you go, actually, at this point, if you're not thinking big picture, then you're going to have a whole world of pain coming at you in the future. Is there anything that you could point to there? Yeah. So it is very difficult. We take it from a day-to-day working perspective because people are too busy and, you know, everyone in a, in a especially in a large organized act will have defined roles. So it's hard for them to, you know, actually sit down, reflect on what the problem is. But if we take it from a theoretical approach of what compliance is, for example, there are actually very early warning signs that you can pick up to make the business start reconsidering whether what they're doing is the most effective way or they actually need to go into a much more joined up view of how to manage compliance and risk, right? And one of those early signs is from a theoretical point of view, compliance is always looking at the future landscape rather than the existing landscape. So my compliance experts should be focusing their time on potential new regulations such as UK SOX or new rules that need to be applied to PRA that may apply, might be applicable to my business. What does it mean from a risk perspective? What does it mean to be a compliant perspective? So they can start adopting new frameworks, new methods into the business to be future compliant. And instead of focusing on that, if a large organization has its entire resource focused on managing existing way of working, that's a very early you know, warning sign for the business that the current way of doing things is not agile enough for them to efficiently and effectively effectively manage their business and operations in the future. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. We've probably covered some of these actually through that conversation, but I guess things to be aware of during the implementation, any kind of 
I guess, things that you would point out that could be areas of concern before anyone decides to start an implementation process? Yeah, so I'll pick a few on these. I think the first one is requirements and the level of detail in those requirements. So the amount of times you'll see something written that says, I want to do a risk assessment, right, as a requirement. Well, every single tool you will go to that offers a risk assessment can say yes to that. But a lot of the time when we speak to a client is they'll actually be like, well, actually what we want is we want to do an inherent or residual. We want a target risk assessment. We want this rating, this rating, this rating, this method of doing control assessment. But you read the requirements and it says, I want the risk assessment, the control assessment. And you're like, okay, I think the first thing is detail and the level of detail on your requirements. So when you're getting those RFI, RFP responses, you're getting the responses in line with exactly what you want to do. And then the second one, because you've done that and you've got it to a next level, is flexibility. Because a lot of the time, if you answer it in the, if you give more generic statements, you end up maybe buying something that's inflexible because it just said what you wanted rather than being linked to the specific risk and control requirements that you wanted. I think, I think for me, that's a big starting point, which is good level of requirements. And like I say, you might not know everything up front. So you can use consulting firms. There are examples of good requirements. You could align to best practices, but like just make sure there is something that you're aligning to rather than just saying, I want, I want to do a risk assessment. So for me, that's, that's one. Yeah. And just to add on to Matt's point, it doesn't mean that if someone's buying risks from a, you know, someone buying a risk management solution, they have a risk background. It doesn't mean they need to do additional research to understand the technology, nor does it mean people that's implementing a solution for you need to become risk experts. I think there are two quick lessons to be learned. And if we adopt them, it's much easier for a smoother implementation phase. And it's all based on the nature of how human behave. The first one is we like to assume other people understand what we say. So we kept at a level that we think people can understand because we understood it perfectly well. And then the re- recipient is then assuming that he understands it from based on his knowledge. And then suddenly we have a failed communication because two people are thinking of two different things. And the second human nature that needs to be kind of suppressed or avoided in an implementation phase or in a project lifecycle is saving the hard problem for tomorrow. More often than not, what we find in the UAT is not because requirements were wrong or sorry, requirements were wrongly implemented or that certain features is not capable technically, but it's more because we haven't solved some underlying design questions around either this technology as a whole or from a business angle, are we really addressing the problem? We parked that until last minute and then we see the final product and go, actually, probably we take all the you know paperwork exercise, but it just doesn't feel right or isn't achieved the problem. And at that point, it's too late for either the, the buyer or the supplier to make any changes. So if we f- face a problem, we should address it at that point rather than park it for a later date. And there's probably another one, which is <laughs> don't make it too complex on day one. And this, this is a lot linked to, I guess, how people buy GRC tools in the past, which is you buy a tool, you then get a third party, someone, a, te- a consultant firm to implement it. You think you've got to get everything in on day one. You tend to make it over complex because you don't want to ask for more budget. And it's kind of counterintuitive because you go and do that. You make it over complex. And then that links to the next thing is the business don't use it because to my point earlier, it ends up being too complex, too many steps, and you don't get the business buy-in. It's about realistically looking at, okay, 
let's see this as a three-year project. And I don't mean that as in terms of like reconfiguring every year, but it's like, say we've got 25 things we want to capture, we, we move to 15 and to 20, and we make a steady jump each year to improving our reporting or each quarter. But it's not going from zero to 100. It, it's making sure that you're keeping it, embedding it in the business so they can use it and making sure it's not too complex. Because again, we've, I know we've already spoke about this, is making sure you're thinking about who's using the system. And if you don't think about that, you can quite easily end up with, you built the best system in the world, but nobody uses it. Agreed. And that, and that's something can be achieved by understanding what your MVPs are or minimum buy product is. So we hear this term a lot in, in our industry or in any SaaS delivery as such. But more often than not, from a buyer side or from a supplier side, we don't really think what MVP really stands for. What a good way of doing that is do a, a, a matrix of who are your stakeholders that you're trying to make their life easier or make their way of working more efficient. And also, what is your end game you know, now and for a month from now or three years from now? And then map those to requirements that then becomes different MVPs. MVP for 2022 might be, I just want to make my first line easier in doing what they do rather than open 10 different spreadsheets and then struggle to then collect information. And then MVP next year is maybe then I have a way more efficient way of reporting all of this information because my entire first line now onboarded. They know how to use the tool. The data looks brilliant. You know, we have figured out that you know the current process is good. But if we tweak the process in one way or another, or we add some other data capturing point, we can actually automate our you know leadership reporting straight away rather than spending another week every month to prepare a pack for the board. But that is a more efficient way than to understand how do I solve my business problem by dissecting into parts. Yeah, and I think I think the final thing that you often see here is like so. Me and Yang, in a prior when we before working here, used to do reviews of GRC systems, and the amount of times you would go and speak to someone, and they would literally say to you something like, we "Didn't really get what we thought we were getting. Um, they bought a tool, and <laughs> first thing is on day one, they were like, they got asked, what do you want? <laughs> like, how do you want it to work?' And they were like, "I don't know." So I think embedded best practice is really useful. But the second one is make sure you're working with a partner that's got experience in GRC, i.e. they know what to do and they can advise you along the way. Because if you're working with like an implementations team or a team that have not got experience in advising a customer, well, as Yang said before, you can end up asking questions like, oh, how do you do it? And they'll just give you the easiest way rather than the best thing to meet your well business challenge. So ultimately, you need to link it back to making sure that you have a team that can help you deliver on what you're getting. And again, you understand what you want to achieve up from. Yeah, that no, makes sense. Look, I think um, making sure that all the stakeholders have been consulted before the requirements are then presented to the market. I think that's another important thing. I've certainly been in situations where a stakeholder will join at the implementation phase and they'll have a very different view on what should have been purchased potentially in terms of the requirements list. That's, all, <laughs> that's always an interesting situation to handle. And the second one that I think is always worthwhile considering is having some representation from the first line in the implementation project. I think that that's something that's missed by nearly every engagement that I've been directly involved in, where again, it's just to try and avoid that oh dear moment where you're struggling to you know, get, the, get the wider adoption in the business if that's the objective in the, in the first instance. So those are a couple of things that I'd, I'd add to that as well. This is great. So just in terms of sort of wrapping up, what would be the key takeaways there? If you could just 
lists them between you in terms of selecting a tool? I'll start with, I guess, the really boring one that I, I always hammer home is <laughs> clearly understand your requirements, goals, objectives up front, like really know what you want to do. And that isn't maybe like, writing requirements from scratch but it's saying we want to align to an industry best practice and you say ISO 31,000 ISO 27,000 whatever it is like you could literally take the document and say that's the requirements really and then obviously tailor it slightly but like have something that you're aiming towards don't just go in and say we want a GRC tool because it's going to uh, fix our problems and then the other one is obviously make sure like you know what methodologies and frameworks you want to align to if you haven't thought about a methodology and framework you should probably do a little bit of pre-work and you can do that kind of at the same time, but you do kind of really need to know what are the things that we're trying to get out of this tool before you get started. And another key takeaway is for a business that's trying to buy a new product is give yourself enough time to properly understand and prepare for what you're getting. So the first point is make sure that if you're not given sufficient time by the suppliers, make sure that contractually you agree on it an amount of time to design it properly with the implementer so they fully understand what you need. And if it means bringing in a representative first line, please do so. And the second thing is making sure you have that adequate amount of time to understand what has been built from a testing and review perspective. So if your tool supplier isn't offering you, you know, two weekly playbacks of new features or isn't offering you enough visibility in their implementation, do speak up and ask for these routine checks to fully understand that you know, it's for you and for them really to make sure that they're not building something you don't want. And then lastly, it's making sure you prepare your internal team with adequate amount of time and expectation so that they can do a proper intern testing or UAT before the product is signed off. I think there's probably two final ones for me, which is start simple. <laughs> Again, you've probably heard me say it twice now, is <laughs> start simple and evolve over time. Make meaningful jumps over a couple of year period and probably budget for that as like look at it and go, actually, I don't need to spend as much in year one. I need to get this done. And then I have a year two and year three cost of like what that means and put some money aside. And the other two really is focus on proving outputs as part of the design. And Nick said this before, is reporting should not be an afterthought. It should be where you start. What are the reports we need to deliver on? So make sure we have all the data capture points to do that. The amount of time we see clients go live and go, actually, we can't create these reports. I'm like, well, have you got this field, this field, this field? They're going, no. So you're like, okay, well, that probably should have been the starting point. And we haven't really touched on this is business embedding. And I'm sure we'll talk about this at length in other podcasts. Make sure you're putting time aside of your, and that's not a consulting, that's your own team for embedding and support of the system. You can build the absolute best system in the world, but if you don't have training, roadshows, drop-in sessions, links to it easily off an intranet page or something where they can get to it, you're never going to get people to use the tool. So make sure you're thinking about that. Of Even if it's just a business analyst for a few months after somebody helping you to embed it and make sure you get your users using it. Yeah. And I just want to add one more final point to emphasize on the point about improving output. It's output is not, or does not equate to outcome. Improving output means output from all aspects, including the user experience, how to onboard users, as well as optimizing the process as part of the design. It's not about just having an artifact at the end or document at the end that you can give to regulators. And I'll have one more on your one more, because <laughs> we all know that software isn't the only component to deliver a capability into the organization. You kind of mentioned it in your summary, Matt, there. 
you need the expertise people to embed. That can help out the design phase and the longer term adoption. You need authoritative content embedded into the organization as well. And if you don't have those kind of three core pillars, the software, the expertise and the content, then you haven't really got a full capability. And are you going to achieve your outcome? It's less likely if you just focused on tooling. So look, thanks very much. That was really, really good chat, really interesting stuff. And uh, yeah, we'll be back with another one soon. Thanks a lot.